But just to note that Jill had to leave in the middle of this episode to run and get a COVID test. Not because she's sick, because she's going to hut with a bunch of people. And so I run away halfway through. <laughs> about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And welcome to our special episode about beer and the history and making of it. Woo. Figure since it is, yeah, summertime. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to actually just open a little. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not drinking beer. I can't drink beer. It's a San Pellegrino. Um, <laughs> you can't drink beer water, so. wait what no i'm a, i'm allergic i'm a celiac dang so yeah yeah that's cider life anyway perfect person for this episode <laughs> yeah it's okay you know in prehistory beer was not always with wheat and barley and all those grains right as we're gonna learn today exactly. so you could maybe get yes. into some of the ancient ales yeah totally yeah, we can recreate some of these and do a little backyard experiment, and then maybe I can drink some. Apparently, I was watching a YouTube video, and people have been doing experimental archaeology and producing these ancient ales, recreating the exact flavor profiles of these ancient societies, even down to the water chemistry. So trying to recreate, okay, so what was the water that they were using to brew the beer taste like in London in, you know, 1538? Or what did the water from the Nile, how did that influence the fermenting process and the beer brewing process? And actually, there's like a lot you can try to put into it to recreate some of these tastes, which I was just finding really fascinating. That is so cool. I read one article from like 1997 or something like that, where they tried to recreate it, but it was not that <laughs> intense. So that's like, that's awesome. I don't even understand how you could recreate the taste of water, like, a few thousand years ago. Well, I guess it's pretty yeah. hard to figure out, right? But water does seem to taste different where you go, right? And I guess it depends on what mm -hmm. the pipes have and the bedrock and what the chemistry of the groundwater is in that area. So I guess there is some considerations you could take, like groundwater and stuff in, like, North America versus near the Mediterranean and how iron content and all that might influence the flavor. I also mm -hmm. think of London in like the 1500s, and I don't think I would want to drink any of the water from then. <laughs> so True. Well, apparently for the ancient Egyptians, wasn't that one of the reasons that they actually brewed beer? Because sometimes, or a lot of, I guess, ancient cultures, fermented beer at least mm -hmm. didn't have toxins in it. And if there wasn't fresh water to drink available that had was going to make you sick, at least beer had nutrients in the right kind of bacteria so wasn't as bad for you kept you kind of hydrated mm -hmm. cheers to that yeah and apparently <laughs> it was also like ancient beer was a lot a lot more carb heavy than ours is even so it was thicker and more like i don't want to say porridgey but like that's the kind of thing i'm picturing reading about it because it was a lot more filling yeah so that gets me into one of the articles that i read which is this yeah this 1996 it was 1996 the recreation of this one so it was delwyn samuel a female anthropologist was looking at how beer was actually made and 
And for a long time, many historians believed that beer was made by crumbling bread into water mm-hmm. and then fermentation of that liquid. But so Samuel studied starches and used electron microscopes to study the remains of bread and linings of beer vessels from tombs from settlements from 1500 BC. And then, so what she knows is that when starch is exposed to limited water, mm-hmm. the granules swell. But when starch is heated in the water, the granules swell and fuse into one another. And so what she found from looking at these samples from her analysis is that most bread remains were in that fused form. And the dough was much more moist than modern bread. Mm-hmm. And then, so if that beer was made by only crumbling the bread into the water, the starch would have been mostly in that fused form. But it was instead, it ranged from undistorted but pitted, I don't honestly know what that means exactly, to completely fused. And so they therefore must have used the malting in the process. Mm -hmm. And so Samuel believed that there there was a two-step process used which were the cereal grains were malted and heated to provide the sugar and flavor and then were mixed with sprouted, unheated grains in water. And all of that was then decanted and fermented to make beer. And then so they actually recreated it with emmer wheat, which was a species used at the time, coriander and juniper flavoring, and they made some beer. And it was apparently pretty good. That's cool. Sounds delicious. I like all the variety of ingredients that were used in the past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's like, I read an article that was talking about beer making in Egypt specifically. This is Alexander Joff from 1998. And he said that at Hierakonpolis in Egypt, they found vats containing several stable carboxylic acids, fermentation byproducts, and uncarbonized wheat, barley, grapes, and dates. And apparently they would also flavor their beer with a bunch of things, including wine. So they would mix them together, (laughs) which is not really something I would even think to do. I feel like we're told not to mix. (laughs) But that was cool. Yeah. And about the bread thing, apparently in pre-dynastic Egypt, bread and beer were made in the same, I guess, factories or like Mm. early factories and they're connected to women yes that makes sense everything i was reading about egyptian beer yeah mentioned that it had a malting process kind of similar to what we use today but yeah they would use the bread they would soak it and then some of the flavors for the brewing techniques at the time included like you were saying a lot of mashed dates honey ginger and then even mandrake root but i think what's pretty distinct is that it doesn't have those hop flavors that we really recognize a lot today with beers So they used a lot of different flavors and even the use of grapes and almost like a mead like with honey to have more of these different flavor profiles than just what we sort of narrowly categorize as beer today. It's really interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. I remember even doing a... Actually, one cool quote is that the history of civilization is the history of fermentation. So we've been brewing beer as human beings for a long time. Even about 7,000 years ago, there is some evidence in Neolithic China and Shangdu of fermenting. I've also heard 10,000 years. So yeah, like it's a long time is all. <laughs> yeah. And just as you were saying, Lulu, it would have looked a lot different in the past, a lot more cloudy, definitely not carbonated like we recognize today. Um, but it's kind of interesting to think about how beer was used in like communal context. It really is like a social 
I guess, centering a social group in like today, but also in the past. So it was definitely used like communally. People would always drink together. And it's almost a really kind of humaning way to connect to the past because the intoxicating experience of this elixir is something that we can feel today and something that, you know, can kind of help us imagine what people were experiencing in the past. Like, how kind of cool is it to be able to realize that, you know, maybe after a hard day's work, someone in ancient Egypt also cracked open, I guess they didn't crack it open, but yeah, maybe they cracked open their amphorae in ancient Greece and had a nice refreshing beverage, you know, in the hot sun, similar to what we do today. And I feel like that's a really humanizing aspect of beer that we don't really consider because it's just so ingrained in our society nowadays. It's really cool. Ingrained. Ah. <laughs> yeah sorry actually speaking of ancient greece uh, i was looking into beer in ancient greece and apparently they looked down on it and they preferred wine so interesting but they also weren't as like wheat heavy in terms of their production there Mm -hmm. as like egypt or mesopotamia they even had a wine goddess and deity so they did associate wine with divinity, and that mm. goddess was seen to sort of free the people because wine was able to free you of your inhibitions and allowed you to sort of be your most authentic self. So it was almost like in ancient Greek culture, I think wine was seen as like bringing you closer to the gods, but I don't think what we would categorize as beer today mm-hmm. is as popular. Seen that same way. There's a pretty interesting reason as to why we categorize beer like it seems a lot like you were saying lulu in the past beer and wine they weren't as distinctive categories like people were fermenting grapes and then adding honey and adding wheat to it and barley and then you're kind of just making this concoction with the sweet and the bitter and all those different flavors kind of melding together versus now we seem to really categorize it like this is a cider this is a beer this is a wine like we don't have that intermixing and like you were saying it's almost like shunned in our society almost to mix these alcohols together right Mm -hmm. yeah That's an interesting comparison compared to the past. Well, and what you were saying about it being a very social thing. I also read an article about maize being used in the Titicaca Basin, which is modern day Bolivia and Peru. And so the traditional beer was called chicha and it was made from maize. And they think that it was being consumed in this form as early as like 800 to 250 BC. And then it was, yeah, the drinking of alcohol in ceremonial spaces was seen as this process of commensality of public ceremony and the establishment of reciprocal relationships like during the formative period. So it's exactly Mm -hmm. what you're saying. It's this, it really brings people together. And it's, yeah, it's very interesting in that way. Yeah. Even in Africa, Tej is considered the national drink of Africa, and based on all the different ways we can classify, it's actually made with honey and geisha root, which I thought is pretty unique for that area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very cool. Oh, and going back to what Lulu was saying about Greece, is that I had read that it was commonly heard of that they didn't drink beer in Greece, but I heard some archaeologists actually found some mash, so like basically old wheat that had been clearly fermented in some pottery that was recovered. So potentially the Greeks were brewing beer, and I think there's even been some talk about trying to recreate a beer using that found yeast. But so far, I think they've only been the most successful, about 100 years old, to actually create beer from yeast that's been recovered. So about 100 years old is the oldest so far. So no old Greek beer yet, but maybe in the future. This would be a great business model, producing, reproducing ancient beers and selling them. 
Well, someone kind of has done that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Pat McGovern from, where is he from? I think he's at Penn. Yeah. So Dogfish Head, I think, is a, a brand, I think. And mm-hmm. so it's trying to sort of recreate these old types of beer. But um, they talk about, it's something called Kvasir, which is, um, it was an ancient thing. That's not being made now. But like, it's what we were talking about. It was a hybrid of beer, fruit, wine, mead, and it was flavored with yarrow, lingonberries, cranberries, bog myrtle, birch syrup. And so it was like completely different than what we're making now. So mm-hmm. just so interesting. But yeah, so this brand Dogfish Head is they're trying to do these like ancient ales and sort of recreate this, these older types of beer that's really cool that's like yeah. archaeologist's two favorite things old things <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. and beer <laughs> yeah old things and beer they're like yes this is everything i needed <laughs> oh it's the best i i'm sure we would be very interested in purchasing from ancient ales if they ever open a nice canadian brewery Mm-hmm. I was hearing one guy was actually having a lot of difficulty establishing himself as a brewery making these ancient ales because some of the ingredients that are used are actually in the States anyways, under the FDA, they're considered medicines. So he tried to make one with like frankincense and mirror to make it like biblical times. But I guess that's actually classified as a medicine under the FDA. So he wasn't allowed to put it in alcohol because someone could theoretically overdose on it and some of the ancient ingredients he was looking at actually contain toxins in minor amounts so if heavily ingested they can make you sick and some of them have even been known to contain substances with psychedelic properties so like mushrooms or something like that so now being able to you Mm -hmm. know sell that in beers is not as legally permitted so it's a little bit of a challenge there yeah yeah so I do need to go. Yeah, we could just say random stuff. Like, the Etruscans, the pre-Italians, made native beverage of hazelnuts, tree resin, and grapes. How refreshing. Yeah. The one other thing you talked about in China, there was a brewery from 5,000 before present, and they used barley, which was a really unusual ingredient at the time. And so, like, a team at Stanford University led by Jiajing Wang analyzed the starch grains from the pottery that resembled brewing vessels from the Mijaya site in northern China. Sorry if I butchered that. And it, so it contained a mixture of millet, tubers, Jobs Tears, which is a tropical grass, and barley. And the chemical analysis of the residues showed that calcium oxalate, which is the common byproduct of beer making. And so what's really interesting about that is that barley was domesticated in Western Eurasia about 10,000 years ago, but it wasn't a major crop in China until about 2200 years ago. And so it might have been like this exotic treat Hmm. to have barley for this brewery. So yeah, I do think... Beer was this very all-encompassing social, and it could have been elite, but it was also for the regular people as well, for the common every day, yeah. Yeah, because beer jars also in ancient Egypt were a main part of wage transactions across Egypt mm-hmm. in the Old Kingdom. Beer is like a currency, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so everyone was using it, so it wasn't just for elite. But you should talk about the Bavarian rulers in 1516 that mandated that beer could only be made with water, barley, and hops which is the beer purity law, which is why nothing is interesting anymore. And I need to go. Okay. So you two finish, okay? We'll keep chatting. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Bye. So yeah, the beer 
purity law, it really seemed to narrow what can be defined as beer and what exists as beer. So yeah, it's definitely limited what how we define beer nowadays. I actually have never heard of this, so... Oh, the beer purity law. Yeah, it was basically... No. It was just defined, as Jill said, and it... <laughs> I think it was in somewhere in Europe, but it ended up, of course, encompassing the whole world in what... I think it was like German area, right? Bavaria? Is that near Germany or something? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so in that area, they're like, okay, well, it can only be... It's like, you know how they're like Champagne? It can only be called that if it is from the Champagne region of France. It's mm -hmm. sort of the same idea where they were like, okay, too many things are being called beer. So they've defined... They've mm -hmm. more narrowly defined, okay, you can only call it quote-unquote beer if it used only or primarily with the ingredients of barley, wheat, and water. Mm. Yeah, so the really addition of hops today is still a more modern take on what we define as beer. Just some post-production information of the beer purity law because I find it super interesting. So this was mandated by the Duke of Bavaria, Wilhelm the Fourth, and it was a new set of laws titled the Reinheitsgebot, which regulated the purity of ingredients allowed in beer sold within the kingdom of Bavaria, which is modern-day Germany. And this was done because water quality was really poor, and so, like Kelsey mentioned, in a lot of places people would drink beer instead of water. But brewing beer was kind of not the most regulated thing at the time, and actually brewers also trying to make more money would put cheaper ingredients into beer instead of things like wheat and rye so that they could make more money and so it was sometimes poisonous and often taste really really bad and we know our germans they love their good beer and so all of these things came together and that's why the Reinheitsgebot was put into place to just use those pure essential ingredients for beer and so completely changed the history of beer as we know it and that is now a much more common thing for beer to be made with only those ingredients. And I found it interesting. Yeah, one time before I did my first field school, I was actually in Portugal and I had met through this couch surfing website, this guy who was an archaeologist in Porto, Portugal. And he actually was like a, I guess you could say, beer historian or wine historian archaeologist. So he actually was excavating these old Porto wineries in these areas where they would store the wines for fermenting and even the casks for afterwards to age the wine. And I guess some had even been forgotten about over time. So he was actually able to uncover these really old casks that contained really old wine that had just been fermenting for such a long period of time. And it sounded really cool. I like the idea of being able to recreate old wines, maybe being finding mash that was found or using yeast from the past if it can stay alive or... So did it have like the residue or yep. the actual wine still? The wine was still in, like contained within these casks. So oh, like- Could you drink that? Yeah, I'm sure it would be really expensive per <laughs> bottle, but <laughs> theoretically, yeah. So they were saving it, I guess, preserving them, but it's like a really cool find. And they actually had part of a museum built over top of this one excavation where they had also found old cellars. And I guess it probably some of the fancy museum galas, they served the wine that was recovered from the cellar beneath the museum's floors. So it's pretty interesting, the history between archeology span and alcohol, <laughs> all the different ways that the paths keep intersecting. Mm -hmm. 
Do you have any other interesting facts? All I really had was talking about how alcohol has been controlled. And I think that really connects to Bavarian laws you were talking about, where governments and states, even up till now, when realizing the kind of power and maybe the addictive quality that alcohol does have, started to create their own mandates and laws around how much you can have, what you can put in it, when you can buy it. And even now we have like age restrictions and stuff. And apparently that even happened in the ancient world where rulers would realize the profits they could make off of alcohol or the leverage they could have through alcohol over people. And that was really interesting to me too, that it really connects to like now where we still have the same kind of control being implemented by our states and that nothing really changes (laughs) as much as you think it does. Yeah, the government still heavily regulates it. That's that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. In the old world, I guess, if you were home home making it. (laughs) And obviously people in the past had more freedom in like making their own beer than we do now. But yeah, yeah, a lot of it was like regulated and handed out by the, especially in Egypt, by the government. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting. It's cool to think, yeah, it definitely would have been more loosely regulated in the past if you're just home brewing everything. But mm-hmm. yeah, for all the different yeasts and the way you can use all these yeast products, it's really cool. I was listening to a video and it was talking about how potentially using yeast from even Antarctic ice cores or places where they've been preserved to recreate beer out of that. Mm-hmm. So like old yeast found at different points in time. But it seems really important to be able to have that fermentation and that process continuing to be able to make beer so it's interesting how like rituals and different ideas around maybe like magic and those same tools such as like stirring sticks and containers and vases being reused a lot of the time so Mm -hmm. there's even talk about people blessing their stirring stick and reusing it again and again thinking it's lucky for the fermentation process sort of before we understood the microbial process of how yeast actually is required in the fermentation process right so it's really interesting that Mm -hmm. yeah how our ideas surrounding this beverage have changed so much through time and how much more we know about it now and even the using of technology like radar for finding caverns or open spaces under the ground that actually could be potential wine cellars or breweries or various things like that how this alcohol is connected and how this beverage has connected all these different lines of evidence this has been a really interesting talk and i've really enjoyed it yeah We love beer. (laughs) Fascinating discussion while I sip a cold one. I guess, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Got into the nice wild rose velvet fog. Sipping on it, delicious. That sounds good. So just to sum this episode up, humans have been fermenting fruits, grains for a very, very long time. It's been suggested it's been about 10,000 years, and it's actually also been suggested that it was our thirst for beer rather than uh, hunger for bread that motivated the domestication of cereals. And beer was very different than it it is today. was thicker, it was rich in carbohydrates and vitamins, proteins, 
and the alcohol killed a lot of detrimental microorganisms. And so it was often much safer to drink than water, which is why it was so popular. And malting also increased the caloric value of the cereals. And so it would <laughs> fill you up. And it was made with way more ingredients than it is today. Ingredients such as honey, grapes, other fruit, millet, tubers, grasses, barley, maize, and even different kinds of flavorings such as coriander and juniper. And there was a much less distinct line between wine and beer. The huge change in standardization of beer is often credited to that beer purity law put into place in the 1500s in Bavaria, in Germany. With archaeology now, we can do chemical analysis of vessels and different pottery that held beer once upon a time and find out a lot about the recipes that were used once upon a time to make these beverages and they're, they're even being recreated today. And I'll actually correct what I said earlier and that dogfish head beer doesn't seem to be emulating the ancient beers, but I did find that the group that was looking at that ancient recipe from China, actually, they are called Jinga Brewing Company, and they have actually released the Mijiaya. Again, I'm sorry about the pronunciation, but it's the name of that site, and it's a Neolithic sour ale based on that 5,000-year-old recipe discovered by those Stanford archaeologists. And so you should check that out. It's pretty cool. And as we've said, those are two of archaeologists' favorite things, old things and beer. So... <laughs> Anyway, uh, we hope you learned something from this episode. As always, all of our references and links will be up on our website, which is pertainingtopeople.com. And you can follow our Instagram at pertainingtopeople and our Twitter at p2peoplepod for any updates on new episodes. And we'll talk to you next time for our episode about women in archaeology. Have a good one and cheers! Mm -hmm.